Hello and welcome to the Rogue Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Pickards. We've reached the final episode of season three and have we got a show for you. Joining us this week is David Montenegro. He is the third pilot we have spoken to in our 24 shows so far and his journey is unique and captivating from the off. David is presently the officer commanding of the RAF's aerobatic team, the Red Arrows. His military career has seen a mixture of flying duties as a frontline fast jet pilot, flying instructor and display pilot. He's had a couple of ground-based roles, one with the US Marine Corps and Afghanistan and has recently returned from studying defence and strategic studies at the Australian War College. His journey certainly hasn't been plain sailing and today he reflects on some key events and individuals that have helped shape and guide him. Just before we get started, a quick reminder to hit subscribe to the show if you've not done so already. Please leave us a review and share the show with your friends. Our podcast has organically grown through 2020 and we are now listened to in 46 countries. It's been a fascinating three seasons, ranging from professors to Olympic champions, from elite Red Bull athletes to people overcoming life-threatening injuries. From Netflix producers to TV presenters, we have certainly covered a range of areas and we are not done yet. Head to our website to keep up to date as plans for 2021 are announced. www.theroadmonkey.org So here we go, the finale to season three, and we really are ending on a high. Episode 24 of the Road Monkey podcast, inspiring everyone to reach for the skies. A conversation with David Montenegro, officer commanding of the Red Arrows. Hello and welcome to the show, Monty. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, thank you for the invitation to come and chat to you today. Well, thank you for agreeing to share some time with us. You've got a fascinating story, which I'm looking forward to sharing. But if you can just give our listeners just a little bit of an overview as to kind of who you are and what you, the headline of your journey has been so far. Sure. Well, I guess I'm invited because of my experiences in my professional career. Um, I'm more than happy to talk about some of the personal experiences, I suppose, prior to for me joining the Royal Air Force, which was uh, 21 years ago. Um, quite a cliche statement, I think, when some people said, oh, it's a long time and it makes me feel old. What I'm so lucky to say is that it definitely doesn't feel like 21 years ago, and that's probably a product of some of the most differing, diverse and interesting scenarios I've been placed in with that line of work. So it does feel like yesterday, there's the cliche, and um, uh, but there is so much that I've been able to experience. Um, my RAF journey starts for every officer that joins the RAF with um, officer training at the heart of the RAF at uh, Cranwell in Lincolnshire. And uh, from there, I was waiting to find out, having been selected to join as a pilot, which stream I would go into. Now, when you join as a pilot in the RAF, you're, you're streamed as you are in many walks of life into various pigeonholes. And for us, that's whether you're going to be a fast jet pilot, whether you're going to fly helicopters, rotary wing, as we call it, or some of our transport aircraft, multi-engine. And when I finished grandma, I found out that I was selected to fly fast jets. 
based upon some flying training that I had done at university. Uh, that was, a, I think, um, definitely a fork in the road for me. I was, I was very keen that it was jets I wanted to fly. And had I not been streamed in that regard, I have no doubt I would have had a, a fantastic career in another stream in the RAF, but I was fortunate to, you know, to get the stream I wanted, I suppose. And then that led straight to my um, flying training, which took two and a half years. Most people leave flying training and go straight to the front line. And uh, again, in another RAF walk in the road for me, I was very honoured to be selected to stay on as an instructor at the fast jet training school that I just graduated from. And actually, to be perfectly honest, I, I, it was a real disappointment for me. I just wanted to get into the frontline operational side of work. And I think that's probably common amongst any serving personnel from you know, all walks of our armed forces that when you spend, uh, you devote so much time and hard work to training, you, you know, you want to experience what you're qualified to go and do in many respects. And my peer group went on. Uh, I stayed to become an instructor and decided, well, even though that's uh, a small disappointment in the progression, I just had to make the most of it. And in those three years, teaching, uh, mentoring, and you know, making sure our next generation of fast jet pilots got to the front line as best as script as they could, I learned so much about myself. And it really opened my eyes to what the teaching environment in terms of performance does. For individuals a fast jet cockpit is a very personal environment you're you're separated uh, front and back instructor in the back student in the front and even though your communication skills on the ground are all done with the usual facets of body language and uh, and presenting to a whiteboard when you're in the cockpit it's, it really is the intonation of your voice the way that you communicate by by audio as well as your, your physical demonstrations. And that really opened my eyes actually to how people learn in very different ways that I'd never really gauged before. After three years of doing that, I, I went to weapons training. I completed my course out in a NATO school in Canada, which is a great experience to the front line to fly the tornado in North Yorkshire and in Scotland. And then at the end of my second Frontline squadron, I got a nudge to apply to join the Red Arrows from my squadron boss. And uh, I think he he saw more in me than I probably believed at the time, to be perfectly honest. But I think that's what good leaders do, is that, <laughs> you know, pr promote that type of um, empowerment and inspire those beneath them to go and achieve more than they think they can do. I applied to join the Red Arrows. I was uh, amazed to be shortlisted and then even more amazed to get in on that first uh, selection week. I spent three years with a team uh, with the Red Arrows and then uh, I left. I went straight to Afghanistan to do a, a ground-based role with the US Marine Corps. Back to just in time for the birth of my first child. Thankfully, I went to another instructional job which gave me a, at least two years of being in the UK and a bit of stability. And then I got selected to be the team leader, read one of the, the Red Arrows after that. I know we'll talk about that a little bit more in the, uh, in the podcast, but a huge void of discovery for, for many reasons, I think, um, personally and professionally. And then back into a, a staff role. So I was behind the desk, but with an operationally focused role in uh, supporting our typhoon fleet. And then I was very lucky to be selected to go to Australia for a year to do a, a master's in um, 
effectively international relations and defence studies and a lot of strategic studies, especially around the Indo-Pacific region. Um, and again, one of 29 representative different countries to, to be on that course. Uh, back into the UK and selected to go back to the Red Arrows to be the uh, commanding officer. Um, and I've been doing that. I took over on the day of lockdown. So as brief as I could make it, that's that's really been my RAF journey to date. Well, we've got some um, some fascinating areas to kind of unpick. I'm curious as to where that all started because you mentioned you're happy to kind of go into like the more personal aspects of it. Let's go before RAF. Where... Where did this all start for you? Was there a was there a defining moment in your teenage years where you kind of went, "That's what I want to do," or was there maybe another event earlier on that actually kind of set you on that journey? Yeah, it's, it's a good point. As I narrated that, I think a lot of people are often judged by what they achieve, but not necessarily on how they achieved it and and what what led to it. And uh, for me, I was actually earlier than my teenage years. I was seven years old when I had uh, seed planted about aviation, uh, ultimately. My father's from South America, my mother's British, um, and on my father's side, we've got a lot of family in Colombia. And we went to see that side of the family. We flew, uh, once we'd got to Bogota, to the capital, we went to where my family's based, which is in the southwest of the country, near the Ecuadorian border. We got in a fairly small turboprop aircraft from Bogota to a town called Pasto. I've never seen, particularly, my mum is not a great flyer, but she was absolutely terrified um, on the way in to land in, in Pasto. She gripped my hand, and I wasn't terrified. Um, by no means was I a thrill-seeking kid, but this experience, I thought, was, it just felt right. I thought, why would you, why would you not want to be in control of this thing? This is just superb, and I, I think, the smells, the scenes around the airports, um, that excitement, seeing for the first time one of my parents more scared than I was, I suppose, <laughs> all of that jumbled up into a, a sense of aviation, I think is somewhat something I would like to do. And from there, it, it grew really between happy to have flown any aircraft in any guise, whether that was you know, commercially or as a flying instructor or in the RAF. But I, I think very much it was my parents were realising I was interested in flying. It's the opportunity to go to a, an air show. And uh, I was taken to Biggin Hill, which is close to where I grew up, Beckenham and Kent. And that was my first taste of listening to kind of the raw power, you know, that hard power of fast jets. And um, in fairness, that was quite overwhelming. I don't think I was excited as the other kids. I thought, my God, this is, this is phenomenal. My entire body is shaking from the the afterburner of these aircraft and looking at the perceived glamour I think of, of that side which I can tell you from life experience isn't quite as glamorous as it looks but um, I think over time even as overwhelming as kind of those early air shows were for me I thought if I could even have a glimmer of attempting to do that then I think that would be a, a great position to be in uh, and then a lot really had to fall into place for me because I, I certainly didn't come from any type of military background by the family. None of my family had been yeah, pilots. Um, and I, I was given a nugget of some of the worst advice from a um, careers advisor in my teenage years. So I am 
no doubt that careers advice is brilliant these days. I hope so, hopefully better than then. And when I muted the point about, oh, I think I would like to be a, an RAF officer and a pilot, I was told that I probably wasn't from the right background and probably should should think about other things in life. And um, I think those decision points where you can accept it, which in fairness I did, it took someone else really to guide me and say, you shouldn't, you shouldn't listen to that. You should go for the dream ticket and try your hardest to work out what you need to do to try and achieve it. Um, that became very much a source of motivation, being told that it probably wasn't for me and was complete misinformation because when I got close to selection boards for the RAF and um, actually for commercial pioneer at the time, I realised it was nothing about your background. It really was who you were, how much work you put in and to be selected on merit rather than anything else in life. And uh, that was an incredibly valuable lesson and something that I talk about a lot to uh, young people these days, um, especially with the, the myriad of information that can flow around now about what you should or shouldn't be. Do you think there was uh, people, whether that was school, whether that was parents, whether it was family or friends, that kind of, again, reflectively looking back, you think actually perhaps without the support of some of those or their guidance or the words that they said, you perhaps wouldn't have gone down this path? Without a doubt. I think that network, whether it is friends or your family or an institutional network, whether it's a school or a youth club that you're associated with that has people that can guide and mentor you, mentor you are invaluable. Um, they're, they're the the people that will keep you on the right path, and it certainly did for me. So in that regard, the advice was invaluable, and then the opportunity to play as many sports as I could in my teenage years was the bedrock of pretty much everything I've done since in the RAF, what I learned in the sporting arena, I think. When you um when you look back again, like obviously there was transition out of like school, like everybody else, into I guess a limbo period where you're not quite sure. Was there obviously having made that decision once you've had that advice from the careers person and strategically decided to avoid it uh, and actually go, you know, where your heart was? Was there moments kind of post sixteen or eighteen or whenever it was where you actually kind of felt like you really grasped onto this route of being a pilot in the sense of it was actually happening? To a degree, I I wasn't very academic until the age of 17. Now, I'm not sure if that's common amongst, uh, you know, people from the background I've come from, uh, whether that, uh, unsure, but what I had a, a bit of epiphany on was post-GCSEs, that if I even wanted a hint of achieving this dream, I've, there's got to be some self-discipline here. You know, I can't just devote my life to, to sport and to friends. Um, I was doing the bare minimum really to get through. And I think that was probably the turning point. Uh, and I, you know, my parents had, had been giving me enough guidance as they did do from, from a very early age, but where I, I really knuckled down because I then realized the, the route, the focus to, to achieve what I wanted to do. And, uh, I, I was, I'm, you know, very lucky that I suppose that that transpired at, at the right time because at, at that age I did knuckle down. I, I did you know, much better academically, and that opened up opportunities for me. I mean, it doesn't to join the RAF. You don't have to go to university. Uh, you can join straight from school. 
but for me it did open up, open up the opportunities to go to a, a university. Uh, I grew up in London and I think like many young people had the desire to go somewhere completely different to your your where you grow up. And so I ended up going to Manchester in the mid to late 90s, which was just an absolute brilliant place to be from a, a cultural perspective in, in every regard. And again, just kept broadening my horizons, I think, was, was the, the key point there. And as, as much as I was being broadened in terms of horizons, I still came back to, I think it's aviation is where I still want to be. And, uh, yeah, that, that kind of was the, the, the really critical part of me. Do you think as well then, kind of, were there kind of milestones, I guess, on the professional side of things? So once you've actually been accepted into the RAF and then you're, you're on this journey of going through all the various training, was there kind of moments you look back that were kind of, um, not necessarily milestones, but they really stick in your memory of almost like pinching yourself moments of, wow, like I've actually got to this place, now what's next? And kind of uh, those kind of waypoints that you moved through on your journey to where you are now. Very much so. I, I think when you get into the, the RAF as one of the armed forces, there are, especially as a pilot, there are so many milestones that you do achieve and, and that you do have pinch yourself moments. When I got to, before I got in and I got to university, um, I, I joined the university air squadron program and I took a lot of time to, to make sure I was ready for that interview. I, I, um, I was quite self-disciplined in that regard. And that, that was a big turning point because once I got into that program, it gave me the opportunity to fly whilst I was at university, but with no commitment. I had got a commission then to join the RAF. The first time I went solo in that aircraft, whilst living a life uh, as a normal student in Manchester, yet almost this um, schizophrenic, turn that life off, become a, an officer cadet in the RAF, learn your checks, make sure you can handle emergencies in the air, go and fly solo at the weekend. That was probably the, the first biggest step for me to, well, a, a realisation that I, I pretty much almost making my dream here even if it stops here I've, I've flown an RAF aircraft having been instructed by an RAF pilot on my own this is just this is just brilliant but really it fed the beast even more for me you know I just wasn't prepared to give up having said that it took me three attempts to get into the RAF after that for various reasons so uh, another message I have about not giving up it, it still took quite a long journey from there on but yes once through the door I think getting through the door was the hardest bit, and that's probably common for, I suppose, anyone. It's, it's getting through that barrier because once you're there, then the world becomes your oyster. And after that experience, because I found it quite difficult to get in, I never, I never ever, I think, took my eye off the prize. I, I, I never relaxed at any stage to think, well, I'm in, so I'm okay. Just kept, I think, in some ways, for self-discipline and performance levels, kept me pushing harder and harder. Do you think working in a team of, you know, obviously in the role you're in now, it's a very high performance group of individuals that are obviously very disciplined and, and quite driven in what they do. Is that a trait that you've kind of seen across your journey that there are some people who, you know, potentially take their foot off the gas a little bit and that actually they don't then carry on in potentially roles that they could have gone on to? In some ways, I, I think any walk of life, any organisation that you work within, you'll see a myriad of characters that have different personal circumstances and uh to a degree i've i've seen that uh i think and as i said there, there are many reasons for it but 
having worked with the RAF for 21 years, it's probably pretty minimal in, in many regards. We have such a collective focus to deliver what it, whatever it might be, whether that's a squadron or a station. Uh, and I suppose that, that feeling of service is very prevalent in everything we do. I don't think you probably see that to such a great extent. But I think that very much, without to make it too corny, it very much binds the people that you work with, regardless of some of the challenges they, they face in their personal lives. Interesting. You, you mentioned earlier about um, this kind of drive to go out on the front line and, you know, be in a kind of active duty, if you like. Was there any, again, specific memories from when you first got that opportunity where you actually kind of went, oh, wow, I'm actually in a, you know, an active war zone? And was that because, again, most, uh, you know, Joe Public in Britain have no understanding or very little understanding of what that's actually like when you're, you know, we can see it on TV and you can watch documentaries and all these sorts of things. But when you're actually there as a person and, you know, you get off the, the transport for the first time and you think, I'm here now, is that, what was that actually like? Well, I think the, the journey to the front line uh, as a pilot is, you hear the word incremental gains quite a bit, I think, in the sporting world. And it's no different. I, the first... I mean, it's the kind of ult it feels like the ultimate milestone is to achieve what's called your your combat ready status. We call it the CR check. So once I've talked about going first solo in a small propeller aircraft just now, uh, first time you fly a jet is a huge milestone. Then you fly the jet at night on your own around the country, and then eventually, you know, you've learned tactics and you've learned weapon delivery, and you get to the front line squadron having been trained to fly the aircraft and you've still got another training package to get through to, to get the badge put on your arm. And the, the crest of the squadron that you wear after your combat ready check, I mean, it, clearly it's, this is all about social identity. This is about, you know, being part of a cause. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not just symbolism. It's, it's really, really important. And if there is one mission, one practice mission, you want to go quite well, it's your CR check because you just want that validation that the last, however it's been, two and a half, three, four years of of work has culminated here. You achieve your combat ready check, you go, great. And now you've got another huge amount of qualifications to gain because you, you will move on from there uh, with your the bare minimum to go and, depending on what aircraft you fly, uh, enter a, you know, a, an operational theatre. But you are the junior pilot amongst the squadron. Um, having said that, I think one of the most interesting parts of that experience is that even though you're the most junior pilots on a fighter squadron, uh, we live in such a transparent world because no matter how much experience you may or may not have, when you go certain, certainly up to the combat ready workup and, and in your first year or so, you are, you will fly with more, more experienced pilots, you will do missions with more experienced pilots and everyone makes mistakes. And there are times when you'll come out on top, you know, on a, for what we call a basic, uh, maybe two aircraft against two aircraft mission, you know, you'll win the fight and you think, my goodness, um, you know, how did I do that? And I learned very quickly what I enjoyed about that, that side of things is that yeah, no matter how experienced or how senior you are in terms of rank and hierarchy, um, your performance 
really is uh, as, as vulnerable as it can be. And it's a matter of being in, in, in that culture environment where your performance can be uh, looked at without any um, any personal criticism and you can draw as, as much as you can from those failures. Did you learn um, that from sport, do you think? Because obviously in sport, again, you can go into a team, you know, a, a, in any sport really, where actually you may not have a huge amount of experience, but you're just good and deliver a good performance. And people go, well, who's this person? Well, actually, you know, you're there to do a job and it doesn't matter whether you've been doing it X number of times or, you know, how many stripes you've got on your arm. Actually, if you turn up and do the job as well as you can, and it happens to be the best on the day, that's it. Very much so. I, I think that does that does have representation in certain sports, without a doubt. The, the difference is, I suppose, it's, it's more about the analysis post-event for us and, and i know at higher levels of sport clearly that analysis is, is really really important and i would love to see that being drawn down perhaps into um some of the less you know the the lower league type areas of, of many sports because it's as valuable there as it is anywhere else and whether you're in a fighter squadron or whether you're in a under 11 you know league cup final um anyway sorry that was quite a big leap from your, <laughs> your initial question but the experience then from there on, um, I suppose I had, I think everyone at some point suffers from imposter syndrome where you don't believe you should be where, where you are. And my first element of that on the front line was on a, a big exercise where I was still one of the junior pilots. I was in my first year of qualifying as um, combat ready on the Tornado F3. And, uh, we had a multinational exercise and um, Top Gun had turned up um, for, they'd been sweeping through the area and they had joined the exercise for a few days. And as an RAF, you know, some of the big exercises you fly, um, you, you get used to this, but this was my first experience of being um, front and centre of you know, one of the most high profile uh, fighter units in the world, I suppose. And, um, it just happened to be the day that I was the mission, mission lead and mission command. And it, uh, I, I never forget standing up in front of, that must have been around, what, I don't know, 40 to 50 individuals from about four different nations. And, um, the top gun crews kind of skulking in the back, <laughs> really looking, looking as cool as they could be. Um, We'd been given the mission lead for that day, and thinking, I can't believe that, you know, boy from Beckham and Kent is standing here. Well, I mean, I've, I've ran into a tree on the first time I rode a bike, I think, when I was five, and, and here I was kind of leading this mission. Um, thankfully, that that next six hours of my life went quite well, and I think that that springboard moment, ski jump moment, as I sometimes call it now, you just have to get through. Um, you just have to do and you have to bring on that that persona uh, even if you don't entirely 100% believe it's you you just have to bring it to bear and, and get the job done as best as you can a, a second very memorable moment for me was uh, on actually on a ground tour in Afghanistan and I had a, a brief job to go out to two aircraft carriers to brief some some crews on what was going on in the south of Afghanistan and yeah I got um flown onto the deck of the carrier. I, I was I didn't know where the carrier was. I didn't know where it was in geographically for security reasons. And as I got off um this this onboard delivery system as it's called, yeah, I was just 
front and center and kind of the, the you know the most evocative hard power element of, of the US Navy and then again had to stand up in front of US Navy squadrons and, and provide them a brief on some information they knew so I, I think all of those those experiences that they're very personal you know as you meet people that have any type of um, military background will have evocative experiences but I suppose they are two where I, I I never ever thought I would find myself in that position. And you um obviously you mentioned there that yeah your commanding officer suggested that you went down the Red Arrows route. Was there particular things that were that took place maybe before that that perhaps laid the seeds for that in their mind that they kind of looked at you and thought oh you know that could potentially be an avenue they could go down or is was there kind of any discussions or, or things before that that kind of you know made you just wonder a little bit like oh what what could this be about? Well, if if there had been, I hadn't really known about it. But what was clear is that my conduct in those first couple of years, I suppose in the frontline squadron and, and perhaps before in my instructional tour, had given them the idea that potentially this type of experience, you know, display flying and representing the RAF in a, in a soft power type um, aspect, an ambassadorial aspect could be a good thing for me as well. It, again, broadened my horizons. But no, I, it never really been discussed. I I had really just been focused on getting combat ready, being on a frontline squadron and moving from there on. But I think once my boss at the time he, and he very, it was a very offhand comment. You know, it was literally walking past the corridor, past me in the corridor and said, um, I would like an application, please, on my desk within two days for the, for the Red Arrows. And I thought, I mean, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a wind up. And then I could tell by his face he was serious. I scurried off, did, did a bit of research and uh, quickly got hold of some contacts that had, had been keen on joining that squadron for uh, many years. And, uh, yeah, just submitted my application. And then, yeah, the, the rest rolled with amazement for me and surprise as I got um, shortlisted and selected. But, uh, again, I think it comes back to those, you know, culture that you live in, those in your mentoring roles that um, have got the ability to, to see, you know, the, the potential and the opportunity for those the individuals that work for them is the key there. Do you think then, looking back again, that actually you've mentioned imposter syndrome already, but actually when you when you went through the various stages of you know applying and then getting shortlisted and then you know the testing and all that sort of side of it, did, at every stage was there a point where you actually kind of accepted, you know, I, I'm going to do this, you know, other than obviously when they turned around and said you're in, was it a constant like almost like fear of failure kind of thing? Um, but this is a slightly strange aspect. Is it, if there's ever a place to have imposter syndrome, it's being lined up in front of the red arrows and going for a flying test with, you know, one of the most high-profile aerobatic squadrons in the world. And yet I didn't. There in that in that seven to eight-day process, I felt really at home. And I looking back, I think that says everything. In some ways, it was because I didn't, not in a negative sense. I. You know, you, if you don't get in on your first shortlist or selection, you can reapply up to, up to three times for the team. I had just quite comfortably thought, well, this is a really good run through for me and hopefully I'll be competitive in the year after or the year after that. So I think that relaxed me. But then 
as the week went on, I felt really comfortable in the environment. I enjoyed the environment. Uh, I loved the approach that the team had to the way they went about their professional business. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a real dis distilled element of the way that a frontline squadron does it, except it does it with a higher tempo and with a, in some ways, a more direct yet analytical manner that I just thought, this is fantastic. This is great. Um, and that clearly helped my performance because I, I felt relatively relaxed during that week. And when I got home, so as when I got back and I spoke to my other half, I said, oh, I actually really, really want this now because I enjoyed it so much. Um, and I hadn't, then I was getting prepared for, I suppose, fear of failure or fear of disappointment. But I'm very lucky that, uh, that, that time around it, um, it was a positive, uh, positive outcome. I mean, you've already mentioned there the you know leading a leading a mission against top or with Top Gun, you know going out and speaking in front of like U.S. Navy staff. You've almost like your your CVs effectively lined you up for an ability to stand up in front of a group of people that you're perhaps not as or from an outside point of view may not be as comfortable in, and then kind of the ultimate test effectively, like you said, for from an exterior perspective, it's probably the most nerve wracking thing you can think of. But actually, knowing that you or again looking back knowing that you kind of like well actually I was quite relaxed all of that the kind of writing was on the wall I guess yeah perhaps quite a few years of going through uh, some challenging selection processes and training courses uh, some quite diverse um, kind of military experiences did help but then my peer group Arguably, you know, they'd been through as much, if not more, than me. So um, I think we we're all in the same boat in that regard. But I think being able to, I suppose, it's again, something I, I do talk to when I engage with young people, particularly through the Red Arrows and the RAF, is that you're going to have setbacks and elements of failure at every single turn. Some are bigger than others. And I've had you know, a, a fair share of that to a degree. It doesn't sound like it, but you do. You know, in your in your personal professional lives, you, you do, no matter what it is on paper you achieve. And I think that probably helped to a degree by the time I'd got to selection to join the Red Arrows. Um, it's why, in many ways, from a Red Arrows perspective, we you have to have a minimum amount of time in the service. You have to have flown at least one frontline tour, be graded to a certain level, above average and that qualifies you to join and I think that gives you enough time in service life and actually in your personal lives to to put yourself in a position where yeah I suppose when you come to such you do feel comfortable. Um, I want to then delve obviously into the Red Arrow stuff because it's there's a level of we, we see the most you know the polished 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 products you know, obviously, uh, as a young kid, I was one of the many that was standing on seafronts and at air shows around the country watching. And actually, the more you, I mean, just working in like elite sport, I, I found there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. And actually, you know, obviously not going to take us through the whole journey, but in, in terms of when you, you're in and you've started that role all the way up to kind of where you are now, what were kind of the, the cornerstones to what makes them so precise, them so disciplined, them so professional in what they do and obviously you know it's, it's we get it as a pilot there's obviously going to be a high level of professionalism anyway but that is such a high level of detail with what they do are there certain aspects that you can look back on and go that is like an absolute cornerstone of what we do 
Yes, and I think my first example is may, maybe not what the listener would expect, but it does make sense. And that was very much about the team culture. Um, and the bit that may not make sense is that in my first year on the team, I was responsible for putting baggage labels onto all of our bags that went onto various aircraft. I had to clean the coffee machine. I had to provide food at lunch times. I did the, the most baseline jobs because I was a team member. No matter the fact that I was in the Red Arrows, I was part um, of making sure that that whole operational cycle worked, as we all are. We all had baseline jobs. You will get some first-year Red Arrows pilots that are absolutely on top of their operational game. You know, they're weapons instructors from the front line. They have led not just an exercise, uh, you know, a mission exercise that, you know, I discussed earlier, but they've done three or four operational tours in Afghanistan, you know, tactical elements that have huge strategic impacts, and yet they're making, they're the coffee, coffee boy or girl on the team. But it's so important from a Red Arrows perspective because it makes sure that there's no ego element to what we do. And as soon as that, that cultural aspect is understood, then when you get into the, the delivery end, when you're looking at, um, the intricacies of a certain maneuver or why a certain performance as a collective could be better, you, you get to an end product that is far more conducive over a period of time. And what I mean by that is it's not about the Red Arrows performing for a specific show or, or akin to a sporting tournament where you just have to get across the line and finish. The point about us as a squadron is we are continually delivering every single year you have your high-profile events, but the turnover of the team, we only expect more when we get you know, new team pilots and new support staff into the team to, to keep on making sure that the reputation gets better and better and bigger around the world. Um, and I think the the making sure of or the ensuring that individuals understand that, that collective vision before anything else is the cornerstone of of what we are. Of course, there are clear functional elements in the way that we prepare for sorties, the psychological, cognitive focus we have uh, during flying and, and post-flying and the analysis. But I, I think I'm really keen to stress that that point more than anything. Um, in, in terms, I, I, I've listened to other podcasts, you know, about other sporting teams or, or, or other, I suppose, businesses that have similar approach, different contexts, but a similar approach. And uh, I can tell you from a fighter pilot's perspective, from a display pilot's perspective, it does work. It's effectively humility through teamwork. And that's, that's something that I've seen it go both ways. In, in, in sport, you see people that get a, bit, get a bit better or get a certain level of status, and suddenly performance gets detracted because of other external pressures, so we say, or distractions that actually come into the fold. And I guess being a a front and house kind of team you know that actually does their business in front of you know thousands of people you know millions all around the world actually there's a huge potential for that so i guess to hear that that's the cornerstone of it it's almost common sense but it's actually you know it's it's real and it's it's what you do so that's fascinating are there any other things that kind of as you've gone through the process that you feel like really gel the team to a point of yeah that precision that they've got i suppose um the way that we organize our year and our months and our days to the point where we can fly two public shows 
you know, two different countries fly between those countries all within a 12-hour period. Um, that comes to really precise support elements being organised. That we, you know, we have a team of about 120 people. The front end is, you know, is the nine display pilots, but it's what is done in the background. And I suppose my job now is to is coordinate all the elements, all the functional elements that then give the the delivery aspect um, the best possible means of success. We um, one of the most important psychological processes we have is to, and and you do this on a on any operational squadron as well, in fact, any training squadron, is, is to make sure that all distractions are removed at a suitable time prior to the delivery. Again, sounds common sense, but for us, you know, we could be doing a lot of uh, public relations, meeting the public, talking to kids, and then we plan very, very detailed timing cutoffs where you get this, what we call the bubble, the psychological bubble. Team pilots congregate into a quiet area, start to visualize what they're about to go and do. Red One has enough time to compute how he is going to lead that show for, for those environmental aspects. The delivery of the brief is very quick, it's very concise. We have a very methodical and logical process of how to brief that sorting. And uh, it, it really leads to one of the most uh, interesting aspects of the team is you're absolutely conditioned to do what you're about to go and do. It's, it's almost second nature, but therein lies a huge pitfall because if you are over conditioned from our perspective, you may not be, you may not respond fast enough to the unknown. And we're very careful in the briefing process about making sure that everyone is ready to deal with an unknown circumstance, an external variable, whether it's a mechanical failure of the aircraft, uh, whether it's a, a bird that flies into the engine and then causes a mechanical failure. All of that uh, is, is brought up prior to, to delivery aspect. Where we open the doors to the squadron to the general public um, as much as we can is for them to watch our debrief process, going, you know, us uh, self-analyze frame by frame what we've just done. And really, Red One leads that, leads that process. You know, he, he looks at self-awareness of the pilots, collective uh, aims, were they achieved, were they not achieved, and why. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, be remiss of me not to mention really how we achieve that, that level of performance. I find that fascinating. You talked about there being over-conditioned effectively, so you're almost oblivious to the, the environmental things because there's obviously some sports that are very controlled in their elements, whereas actually, you know, what you guys do is actually so open. And obviously there's parameters that you work within in terms of it can't be too windy or, you know, visibility and that sort of thing. But there's obviously going to be more challenging days than, you know, a day where there's a two mile an hour light normally and it's blue sky, you know. So, I mean, how do you kind of, I guess, find the envelope? Because actually you guys, you you will push to a point where you've still got to obviously maintain that perfection, if you like, in terms of the visuals of the display. But actually there are some conditions you're in, whether it's with crosswinds or whether it's just a, the, ge the geography of the area that you're flying in is obviously going to be more challenges there. So how do you build in that kind of, I guess, adaptability with your pilots? Well, the, the first, the cutoff is fairly easy because we adhere to very black and white regulations in terms of what we can and can't do, depending on the environmental aspects, whether that's weather or the, the operating environment, the type of airfields we work from. Um, so relatively speaking, that's easy to to, you know, green light or red light. But to deliver a show, you know, we could deliver a show in 
30 to 35 mile an hour winds with a thousand foot cloud base that then changes to a bright summer's day, which could, could well be any day in the, you know, the British summer anyway. And we can adapt the show within the 20 minute period that that occurs. And we can only do that safely because of the nature of our training regime and the way that we systematically build the, the, and choreograph the show through the training process. And then in the last probably six to eight weeks are the most important for us because we expose the team to different geographical sites. Um, and there are elements where we, you can induce uh, visual illusions, depth perception over water, hazy conditions so the horizon melds into the sky, which can be very dangerous for any pilot in terms of disorientation. And we, we put that in a very conditioned training environment and expose the pilots to that three times a day, every day. So you, do, you fly 15 trips a week, almost every week for a five month period to get yourself ready. So when you come to the delivery end, because we don't need a rehearsal at any site, we brief purely off satellite imagery and, uh, and you know, all type of um, images that we can gain of a site. We can deliver that show anywhere in the world safely. Um, but it, like anything to do with performance, always comes down to the, the training mechanisms that you have. I, I guess, um, Obviously, the, the, the type of people that you've got in that environment possess some level of standard traits, if you like, or attributes that make them be able to function and obviously thrive in that area. If you were kind of sharing a message, I guess, back to people that are still kind of finding their place in the world and actually they're on this journey, whether it's you know GCSEs, A-levels, or they're off in, in the working world and actually considering going into the world that you're in, what other kind of I mean, we've mentioned kind of humility we've mentioned kind of this this hard work this teamwork and all those sorts of things are there any other things that you think are kind of absolute hallmarks for not just from a red arrows point of view but actually what makes a successful pilot or somebody who functions well in that kind of performance team environment i think that the term emotional intelligence is talked about for every area of business or military or sporting worlds, but and and I, I think it's important. But I have a slightly different take that actually something that I I learnt about last year when I was going through my MA in Australia. And um, one of our presenters talked about it not just being an awareness but an intelligence. It's, it's what you do with it, and uh, it's a competence rather than just a. I don't, you know, everyone can be aware of something, but if you can't utilize that, then what's the point in being aware? And I think for me, this is probably the foundation because, um, if you can, if you're aware of your, and if you can regulate your emotional behavior dependent on what's going on in your, um, personal life, and I'm not saying being like a robot, but I mean, just the days that you, when you come into the professional environment, you know that you're, either on a high or a low, or you're feeling incredibly balanced. You're somewhere in, in that three. But the, able to, the ability to regulate it, to know when you can show your vulnerabilities to the, the, the team that you're already in, and the days actually when it's probably better to just to put a lid on it for a few hours or for a day or so, because that's actually the best way to go. That comes through trial and error, and that comes through being in any team environment from the age of, five probably five six seven eight and you, you learn by that process but i think from a leadership aspect that's even more relevant in terms of the, the competence of how you deal with that in yourself 
making sure you have, you build in enough time to understand that in the people that you are leading and get a feel for how they are dealing with certain circumstances. Once, I mean, it all sounds common sense, but actually can, I felt it can be very difficult to do on certain occasions. But once you are able to do that, then everything else falls out for me. The trusting people, empowering them to do what you want them to do without being too over controlling or by not showing them enough attention, that seems to work itself out with careful attention. And watching the dynamic within your team seems to improve as well. So giving yourselves the opportunity to to experiment ultimately with um, having that type of competence uh, can only come through trial and error and putting yourself in big or small team environments, particularly those ones that you don't feel comfortable in, I think. Well, you, I, I've got the amount of times I felt so out of my comfort zone, scraped my through my way through a, a, a day or a meeting. I learned a lot from that one, and that all goes into the into the toolbox for, for want of a better term. So, yeah, that that would be my my number one take on on adapting and learning throughout your entire career, as I do every day now. That's brilliant. There's one more thing I, I, I'm curious about having listened to kind of you talk through your journey there and obviously even just your, your kind of headline information from the start. You, you have to have an element of drive and constantly pushing yourself forwards. And do you get to a point professionally, especially in a role like this, where actually you then kind of go, I've kind of developed myself, if you like, not to a point where in any way that I'm like a master or an expert in it, but actually I'm going to allow others to do that and actually i'm now going to let my personal life catch up because i can't imagine this kind of role and the journey you've been on it is not necessarily family friendly but actually there's some real challenges that come with it so do you find a point on your professional journey in this kind of walk of life where actually you kind of not in any way take your foot off the gas but you actually go right i'm now going to make the people that i'm working with as, as developed as possible and actually uh, myself actually take a little bit of me back and, and let my personal life expand Yes, uh, it's difficult to speak for everyone in, in my environment, I suppose in the RF in that regard, because this really comes from your personal circumstances and, and your personal makeup. But I think in general terms, finding, finding that balance at certain times is, I mean, it's a must. No one can, can continue year on year at certain performance levels. Um, but what helps us, I think, in the Air Force is that we move jobs every three years. So you're given an opportunity to shift focus into an area that, um, maybe is, may, maybe actually as high tempo as before, but in a different field. So you start in a more junior, uh, area and you work yourself back up again. Or then you are given an opportunity to maybe you'll come out the cockpit for an 18 month period, go into um, a, a more stable lifestyle for a you know, short term before then going back into a, a very high tempo profile and yeah, taking care of and balancing that it's it's very tricky because for us that you know the, the service will need you in, in the right place at the right time to deliver a job. But you know, I, I really do feel this is not a, just a, a sell for the service. I really do feel that at any time we can put a hand up and say, okay, for whatever circumstance. I need 
uh, I need this to, to rebuild or to focus on this, and then I can come back to what you, where you need me to go for another reason. And, and we're good at that. Um, I think it's probably why I'm, I'm still here because I, I really value that. I feel that's a really important part of our organisation. Um, so yeah, I, I've had to make those choices in my in my personal life, uh, and yeah, it's the only way I think you can get through and continue to, to develop yourself rather than just running yourself into the ground and, and losing focus on some non-professional but the most important areas of your life that being your family. I certainly. I've got one more, one more tiny little thing actually. That's a, just looking back. Obviously, you've mentioned quite a few times there, either being outside of your comfort zone or coming up against barriers or, or whatever it is. And especially at the start, actually, the biggest barrier of just breaking into this kind of arena. What would your kind of golden rule, if you like, to anyone out there? And we're not talking people necessarily who've got aspirations to be in a pilot or an RAF or whatever it is, but actually, they have an ambition they're working towards, and there is in their mind to some degree, a barrier in the way, what would be your one thing that you kind of know helps you get through those barriers? I think that you find yourself someone close that you trust that can give you that external opinion, that, that mentor, whether that comes from your family or from your school, that can give you a slightly different perspective finding that mental can be really difficult and that actually needs to come from you sometimes you need to seek that individual because you can get yourself to a period where that barrier almost feels that something that cannot be broken on your own and i found that with that one comment or that one insight from someone else that knows you very well that you trust and, and they trust you you'll find your way around the barrier um, some people can do that on their own, some can't, but I think that gives you the greatest opportunity for, for breaking down whatever it is. Seek advice. And, and if you don't get it the first time, find it somewhere else. You know, keep asking the question. Keep asking the question. And uh, whatever you do, I think, from my experience, never give up on it. Um, if there are you know, extant reasons that completely nullify you from being able to do something, you will find a way around. You know, there, there will be other areas, maybe of an industry that you can get into that are as fulfilling, if not more fulfilling, that you just didn't know about. So keep asking the question about how you can get there. That's fantastic. A lovely message to kind of pull all that together. Thank you so much for your time. It's been, it's really interesting kind of talking to a number of pilots now. And actually, obviously, there are aspects to your journey that are, are quite similar. But actually, because like you say, the, it's such a personal journey that you go on that it's really nice kind of unpicking it and actually some wonderful lessons there for people to take away. So thank you so much for your time. No problem at all. And, and thank you very much for having me. Wow. Where to start with that discussion? So many things to unpick. Never give up. Keep asking questions. Expect knockbacks. Seek mentors. Learn from others. Be grateful for honest feedback. The list goes on. I'm sure we all took our own learnings away from that interview, but I was just blown away by his honesty, mindset, and how humble he was, especially in light of such an incredible career. There's a lot to be said for some of those attributes, and I've no doubt that we could speak to a thousand or even a hundred thousand people from different career paths that have become inspiring and successful, and we would find that again and again, these traits emerge. So. 
24 episodes across 11 months. How do we pull it all together in 30 seconds? Firstly, own your future, otherwise somebody else will. Secondly, sometimes the way things have always been done doesn't mean you can't challenge the status quo and become a trailblazer yourself. And ultimately, find what it is that you love and give it everything you've got. Working hard is not a negative. It's a part of the process to become successful. A huge thank you to the incredible guests for sharing their time. And of course, to you, the listeners, for joining us on this exciting journey of discovery. If you want to feature on our special 2020 review episode, there is still time to get in touch. Just head over to our website or social media and drop us a message. Stay tuned as we will be back in 2021. But until then, thanks for joining us for the Rogue Monkey Podcast.